Welcome to episode 19 of Beanpod by Upshot, the only Upshot podcast available. On today's episode, I'm excited to present to you guys the interview that I had with Trevor Johnson. Trevor is my cousin, but more importantly, he is a guy that really understands the dynamic of the wine industry. He's got aspirations to open up a restaurant sometime in the future, which is exciting because I know he'll do a really good job with it. Um, But in the end, I wanted him to come on to discuss the complex dynamic that goes into wine. This includes harvesting, processing, and, you know, all the way down to the consumer side. Uh, Trevor seems to have a grasp on how it all works. And one major topic that I was excited to discuss was that of fermentation. Um, And as if if you know, if you don't, coffee has recently embraced this practice through experimentals. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you can tell that we're very excited about this. So I'm pretty confident that you guys will find this conversation interesting because it highlights the overlap between these two industries. And I know I knew there was a lot of similarities going into the interview, um, but I was not ready for the sheer amount of them. So without further ado, here is my interview with Trevor Johnson. Alrighty, so today's guest is a guy that I have been waiting to get on this pod for a while now. Honestly, Trevor, I feel like when this first opened up, when we first started filming this podcast, like, a year ago, you were probably one of the first guests that I have in mind. So it's flattering. Yeah, it's flattering, right? <laughs> so without further ado, I just want to introduce uh, Trevor Johnson to the pod. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming on, man. Anytime. Before anything, I guess we should probably mm-hmm. say we're cousins. Yeah, we, yeah, right? we are. Yeah, but we a biased on that. Yeah, case, then. we've always kind of had uh, similar tastes and mm-hmm. the finer things in life. I guess you could say. Sure. Yeah. So maybe very similar us, personalities. Yeah. So maybe call us bougie. Um, but that kind of is leads us into what we're going to be talking about. Um, so before we get into anything, I kind of want to just allow it to open the space, like the floor to you, yeah, and give our listeners an idea of who you are, what you do, and like some okay. of your work experience. Um, I know that's very general, but no, it's perfect. Do your best. Yeah, I mean, generally, I mean, I guess in total. I mean, I'm a, I'm a restaurant nerd at this point. Um, I went my whole life trying to kind of get out of it and not work in restaurants and kind of avoid that. How that how that how that worked for you? It, yeah, it didn't work out well, and um, I've kind of just given myself to it. Like you know, a, a hero of mine, Danny Meyer, born in St. Louis, you know, owns a multitude of restaurants now. Um, Union Square Hospitality. People might have heard of him. Owner of Shake Shack. You know, he talked about the same thing where he was like. You know, I, I avoided it my whole life, even though I loved food and, and wine and all these things. And then finally, I just said, what am I doing? And that's kind of where I'm at right now. And so not you to, know. Not to compare myself to, right. <laughs> to Danny Meyer in any retrospect. But yeah, long story short, I've been in and out of the restaurant business in multi, you know, a multitude of capacities for, um, you know, my whole life. You know, ever since I was like 17, delivering you know, uh, sandwiches for Picklemans and, yeah. and whatnot. Uh, Forgot about that. Yeah, and, and got into spirits first, which leads us to where we're kind of talking about right now. Uh, liquor, spirits. I was into so craft started cocktails. started with... Started with okay. craft cocktails right when I turned, I want to say 21. I got a bar back position at Missouri Athletic Club. Um, and yeah. yeah, 1903 bar, uh, which is a pretty nice bar, actually. Um, it's the West Missouri Athletic Club. Uh, there's a downtown one as well. But I got started there. And was a bar back, so you know you're changing ice, you're doing all this these little tiny minuscule tasks for your you know your bartender. It took six months before they, I want to say like actually more like three four months over the summer before they offered me the 
the job. And again, I was still going to school, the job as a bartender, and I was still going to school. So I kind of, again, was like, no, nah, I don't really want to do this. I don't think I, I still need to stick to, you know, getting a real job type yeah. thing. Um, one thing led to another. I got heavily into wine as I was a cook. So I transitioned from the front of the house to the back of the house. I got an opportunity to work at one of the best restaurants in St. Louis, Louis on Demand. Uh, not to be mistaken with Bar Louis or Louis Wine Dive. A lot different. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of times when I would tell people I worked at Louis, they would say Bar Louis? And I'm like, no, no, the good one. No, uh, no, no. <laughs> and I hate to say that, but it's a chain, so I can say that. Um, but yeah, I worked at uh, Louis. Um, I just didn't love, you know, the... I, I wanted a little... Not that I've always been money-driven, but I wanted a little bit more money, but I still wanted to work in restaurants, so then I switched back to the front of the house and, and kind of started working when I moved to Nashville that's kind of when COVID really hit and I transitioned from being in restaurants to kind of selling wine. I got an opportunity cause I wasn't, I found myself without a job when I moved there, all the restaurants were laying people off to secure their themselves. And I started working with wine in terms of selling it. And I had to learn a bunch really quick cause I kind of got the job unknowingly cause I kind of talked my way into it, which I generally am pretty good at doing. Yeah. And He's a talker. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why, why yeah. I thought this podcast would have been a great <laughs> right, idea. Right. Yeah. So I, I kind of, kind of got my way into that job. I was selling kind of like low quantity wines, like in terms of production, like smaller producers, you know, smaller quantities, not like heavy, not like barefoot or anything right. like so that. So be a higher, higher price probably yeah, per bottle. Some of them were, but yeah, a lot of the times it was that case and like stuff in the, the natural wine world where, you know, there's plenty to be discussed about that too right. that I can go back on. But again, you know, it was a good job to get. It was a really respected uh, distributor in the wine world in Nashville uh, there's a whole side of the wine world that people probably don't realize in terms of distribution and importers and, and whatnot. So got a job with that, learned a lot really quick. Um, I still, you know, know more about wine than spirits, although I am back more on the spirit side now. I work at Wright's Tavern. Mm -hmm. uh, they're also a part of the Louis Group, the newest restaurant from Louis on demand. Um, I'm the bar manager there. Like I said, though, I, I, I wrote the cocktail menu. I'm heavily into cocktails, but I still know more in terms of yeah. knowledge about everything in the wine world. Yeah. I still love wine. I probably die with a glass of wine in my hand right. rather than a cocktail. Right. So yeah. Well, and then the reality is short. too, like with the cocktail menu and then the yeah. whole restaurant business is, is very similar to coffee. And right. I wanted to talk a lot about wine and fermentation and like how mm -hmm. that impacts things. But no matter what, like restaurant in industry and coffee industries are like one and the same. Yeah. Um, so I think no matter what your perspective is going to be super valuable. Um, yeah, and I mean, and to finish, you know, my future goals, like, you know, I, I want to own my own place one day, restaurant-wise. I'm a restaurant nerd. I've explained this to you before, but been on Instagram all day, every day for so long, just kind of you looking up restaurants. And, Instagram, or do you, you, yeah. you do any, uh, <laughs> no. none of that? I, I, I really kind of have more of a private Instagram now. I kind of, like, took my picture down and all my all my posts, but I use it more of, like, a learning tool now. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I like but that. I'm still on it far too much, but... I, 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 it's what I do. I mean, it's what I, my goal is one day. Will it actually be accomplished? I hope so. But, um, but yeah, that's what I look at. And, and a lot of this plays into that. And I've learned a lot about that, but that's more of what I focus on now is I don't really learn much more about wine. I need to, I need to start reading a little bit more and like kind of brushing up on the knowledge. I've, I've learned, uh, you know, enough right now where I could say I'm pretty proficient in it, but, um, you know, there's definitely people out there that yeah. know a lot no, more than me. A ton, but, right. but like, yeah, there's, there's, you know, people that are master sommeliers that, which they consider, you know, there's less than 
there's less master sommeliers in the world than astronauts. Like that's how wow. that's how crazy the wine world that's gets. Crazy. That's how crazy the wine world gets. But yeah, that's in in theory that's my goal. Is that now I focus more on the restaurant side of thing. Like I'll spend some of my day looking up glassware and like right. the different glassware producers. Like right. that's I'm just like getting all this knowledge together. You are in it. Yeah, you I'm, are yeah. fully engulfed. It's <laughs> yes. like what we like to say. Yes. It's like you are a nerd in the highest fashion, which is yeah. very much respected in this uh, this podcast yeah, for room. For sure. Because yeah. that is exactly <laughs> what we are. Um, but the first question, I mean, that's yeah. a pretty good summary. That's it. I yeah, say. I mean, um, I, I, any more would be just over, right. over to stating it, I uh, think. And we'll probably dive even more into it. But right. first question I kind of wanted to talk about was just giving an idea of like the wine industry. And I'll give you an example mm-hmm. from how I would classify the coffee. So just kind of like how it breaks down um, and why you love it so much kind mm-hmm. of will tie in. But generally with coffee, it starts on the farm and mm-hmm. then moves to the producers who are, you know, if there is a fermentation taking place, it happens there, you know, drying. Um, and then some, some sort of aspect of getting the seeds prepped and then it moves to importers selling it from the importing moves to the roasters from the roasters it moves to the cafe. And that's kind of like, generally the breakdown i mean is that a similar yeah. overlap when it comes to the wine it's funny because the best way easiest way i can describe it i'm not going to get too in depth because it would just take forever yeah. because the alcohol industry is so wild in, in the united states because of prohibition and the rules that still are in place fr- from it uh, that it's mu- it's different in a way but it's very similar whereas you know you, you you think about it's the same thing like where it starts with the producer whether they're growing their own grapes or not sometimes they don't like so there's wine brands that don't grow their own grapes you know they get what they call negotiant grapes which is like they find a farmer and that farmer doesn't produce their own wine they just sell it to other wineries uh you know same thing happens in coffee right yeah yeah the producer doesn't really have to right grow for them to then exactly yeah it's like you know i mean barefoot isn't growing all their grapes you know they're they're getting it from a band of farmers and that happens oftentimes, like, you know, a lot of the champagne houses up in Champagne, which I'm not going to get into like what real champagne is too right. crazy, but yeah, champagne yeah. is grown in Champagne. Um, if it's sparkling wine from Italy, it's not champagne, right? <laughs> so it has to be from Champagne, France. There are a lot of these bigger houses, like if you ever see like, you know, some of the like Dom, you know, well, Dom Perignon's a little bit different, but like, you know, Veuve Clicquot or whatever, they're, they're the most famous champagne brand in the world. They're not growing all their own grapes. They're getting it from farmers. Uh, that are growing it that don't have their own wine labels most of the time. They right. can also have their own wine labels sometimes. But long story short, if you are a producer that's growing your own grapes, you know, sometimes sometimes you're you know if you're a chateau in France, that property might be 150 years old. It might it survived several wars. There's a chance that Nazis invaded your you know your right. your land and they probably hung out in your your chateau for a you know a couple of years and showered there and took it over. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, so if you are growing your own grapes, you're growing your own grapes on that plot. Some of your vines can be 100 years old. Those are extremely old vines. So, the, so just quick, the vines, vines. they like, yeah. continue to produce, right? Yeah, so they continue to produce until they don't, and technically. And at their end stage, you know, the grapes will sometimes be really highly, you know, highly, uh, you know, and they can be highly sought after because sometimes they make you know, really good wine when the, when the vine is old and struggling, but a lot of times it kind of starts to give out and you have to yep. rip them up and plant so new older ones. is not like technically not always better. better yeah. Yep. But it can be, and it depends on how you've taken care of it or what you spray. But a lot of times starts with the farmer, 
their process, you know, they're harvesting their grapes after a, a multitude of different things. Um, you know, whether it's on a slope in a, in a, in a, in a, on their vineyard and how much sun exposure, every, all these little playing factors, you could keep going, um, play into how the grape turns out. If you're a really good producer, you have all the right, you know, things that are happening in the vineyard. You're, you're taking that, you know, you're, you know, you're taking it straight to, you know, the winery where that's where the work and the magic is done, where yep. you're pressing the grapes mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, fermenting them and blah, blah, blah. And then you ship them off. You usually have an importer that you're working with in the United States. Let's just talk about the United States yeah. at this point. Let's say, because yeah, it's, it's too vast. Yeah, it's so vast. But United States, they're buying it. There's an importer. Let's say it's Kermit Lynch. It's the most famous wine importer of all time of mainly French wine. And... There are a lot of these importers out. I mean, there's yeah, tons of importers of all sizes and shapes and all different. Like the one I worked for in Nashville was an importer and an, and a distributor, and that you can get into another time too. Where, but really, how it works they're, is they're selling a finished product. Yeah, like you, they're, you can they're importing wines as well as distributing it locally. Right, you can only distribute it locally in that city. Um, you have like a certain or that state. Um, so really, there's a bunch of hands that touch your wine. I'm sure it's the same way with, with coffee. There, way. It's ridiculous, especially because of the fact that prohibition is the way it is. Um, in certain states, there's even like five processes, like like Kansas. So the producer ships it over to the importer. The importer you know, receives it. They're usually working with um, a distributor. So a distributor in St. Louis, let's say for uh, just, you know, Bomarito Wines, it's a family-owned you know, long-standing distributor. They're working with Kermit Lynch, so then they receive that product from Kermit Lynch in New York or wherever Kermit Lynch is shipping it out of, and then there, as a distributor, have sales reps that's you know sell it to wine shops Good or agree. restaurants, and then the wine shop or the restaurant sells it to you. So it's like four, you know, four hands or yeah. so. Why maybe you know. when you go to a restaurant you're like, God, how is this yes. bottle so damn expensive? It's ridiculous. Yeah. 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 And That's why it's so expensive yeah, because everyone gets right. a cut. It doesn't have to be like that. It shouldn't necessarily be like that. Prohibition is, has you know have you know and, and like I said in Kansas, not all, like you can't even. So basically, they have to sell it to the wine shop, and then the wine shop or the shop has to sell it to the restaurant, which is insane. So that not only that that means that means restaurants are buying their products from wine shops so they're getting like shipments from wine shops and stuff like, like it, that, that means it's five it make, hands it, it makes no sense so make any sense. yeah it's it's just due to prohibition it's, it's and just loss. all stuff that's set in place to make it more difficult right yeah to, it's, so there's really right. no like in coffee we always talk about like direct trade relationships uh-huh. where there's none of these i mean importing is a is a task on its own mm-hmm. like there's a lot that goes into it but there's this goal that if we can work with a farm directly and get yeah. um, directly from them, then you you skip three to yes. two hands is is it's pretty there's, much impossible for the there's, wine industry. There's ways that you can do. I know there's like so it only generally happens with big shops, and I think it's just a way for them to kind of make more money. They call it DI, like direct importing, mm-hmm. and I think that's what, what they go straight from the wine shop either to the distri- or the importer or sometimes to the producer if the producer has the ability usually it's california on american soil they have sometimes the ability to act as their own importer distributor so then awesome. they'll ship it straight from the winery to like let's say randall's down in city of st louis which is a ginormous hub of a warehouse of, a, of and they can afford to bring all this product in at this certain price and then they act 
like they're you're getting it cheaper as a customer, but they're gotcha. just making it the same price anyways. Gotcha. Basically, a lot of times yeah, is yeah, how yeah. it happens. Um, so that's the closest thing, and I, I don't know the legalities, you know, that with you know go all around that. No, um, I'm sure there's plenty of of it, but that's the best I know of it in that case. Yeah, dir- the direct importation of yeah. of some wine, that's usually pretty, California. It's pretty fascinating because yeah. you mentioned during that whole process of like every factor that is going on with on like on the vineyard when it comes mm-hmm. to elevation, when it comes to yep. soil, when it comes to just how it's like processed. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, affects the taste in the end. Yeah, right. I mean, it's crazy, especially when you we start talking about fermentation, because. Um, for those that are listening that don't have a full, we've talked a ton about experimentals and that's kind of what we talk about. The, the word we use when we're talking about fermentation in coffee is experimentals. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is kind of the, the, the cool overlap that I see with coffee and wine is not only is it grown similarly, is it similar aspects are affecting taste, but now we're including fermentation. It's like, right. Definitely coffee is looking at this industry and going yeah. like, how can we maybe be more like? Mm-hmm. How can we make it more interesting? Um, and the funny thing is, prior to this, we did a uh, experimental cupping, and um, you just you got to taste the differences between different processes. It's unbelievable. And, yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. No, um, I mean, like you were like, I mean, and not to not to go into it too quick, but yeah, I mean, it's very similar. Like I see the same exact kind of lineage of how everything kind of comes together and the stages of fermentation and this and that. And I think there's a movement happening with the younger crew and wine world and coffee world and all these sort of culinary worlds where everything is trying to be slightly more elevated. And that just leads to people bringing in new ideas. Like, you know, like I said earlier, like the natural wine world. Can there, you give us like, what's the, what would be definition of a natural? Yeah. Wine? So it's a difficult one. And like, you know, I'm on the fence about it. I, there's a lot of people who hate the natural wine world. I don't love it either. Um, there's this idea that like natural wine is better for you or that it's a certain thing or that it has like less sugar in it or that it's this and that. And there's just so many, you know, there's so much myth shrouded in it. And really what it, and I've worked for a natural wine bar. I helped open one up and really I, I like some natural wines, you know, but it's the wines that they're too experimental and they're too wild and they're flawed. And there's a term called flawed and, and that just means bacteria has infected your wine. Um, and there, there's a lot of that in the natural wine world. But the idea is that it's healthier and it's not always healthier, that it's made with less sulfur. But the problem is, is there's still going to always be sulfur in wine because that's just the natural form of, you know, how right. alcohol is made. Um, it's going to produce sulfur, but there's people who are sensitive to sulfur. Gotcha. And that's the idea so of it. you get a lot of complaint. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. But the idea is that it's made with less sugar, which doesn't technically make any sense because, the, you know, it's natural sugar coming from grapes. Um, and most good producers aren't adding sugar anyways um, to their wines. And if they are, it's to increase the alcohol because sugar right. converts into alcohol. Right. So they're just making their wine more alcohol with more alcohol if, yeah. if their vintage right. came out a little weird. And so that sugar is technically converted into alcohol. So it's still the same amount of sugar anyways, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, no, I'm fine. Um, but yeah. So, so you're reducing. So that's really what it is. When you throw in sugar technically in fermentation it's, yeah it's actually going to come out with yeah well, and, and, sugar, into right? more alcohol well into more alcohol yeah, it probably sometimes a little i'm sure a little bit more residual sugar is hung on to it because naturally when you have a bigger wine meaning bigger in terms of usually when the word bigger is used in the wine world it just means it's heavier alcohol or it's gotcha. richer um like there's pinot noir which is grown all over the world right but it's grown in california and when it's a little hotter out you know it's going to be bigger because the there's just more sugar 
the heat makes breaking it, down. it produces yeah. more sugar in the grapes, meaning when yeah. you're going to ferment it, more sugar right. equals more alcohol. Right. That's why there's wines in the Rhone Valley in France that are 16% alcohol. And that's the problem about climate change, which we'll get into, right. I'm sure, later, is that when when it's hotter, the wines are really big. Yeah. So you and have they're a fermenting on the actual vine? Or, we, uh, so or is, w- is it outside taking place? All the fermentation? the fermentation is done in the winery. So that's the thing about wine wine grapes as well, um, which I don't want to get too much into that too because it's just going to confuse people, but there's different breeds, basically. You know, There's Vitis vinifera, which is grown in Europe, mm-hmm. which is the most of what we drink of wine. And then you have um, the wine that's more domestic, um, which is American vines um, that's grown out in Defiance where we mm-hmm. you know, grew up next to right. it. That is a different whole breed of right. v- v- uh, wine grapes. So, and then within those breeds, are there different like species, or is yeah. it just a okay? So technically, th- those are two different species of, wa- of grapes. They're both they're, made for wine. You can't, you know, that those are wine-based okay. grapes. Um, and you know, generally, yeah, like so. Basically, all the fermentation is done in the winery. I think that's kind of what we were saying, um, what we were talking about. And you know, what's done. In the vineyard is done once you pick the grape. You can't really ripen it any. You can't ripen it anymore, or you know, get it less ripe. Right. Um, once it's off the vine, gotcha. so all of it is, and that's different because you know other fruits, right? When they're picked, they ripen afterwards. Right. Like you know, you can ripen an avocado still right. Right. after it's you know you know mm-hmm. it continues to ripen and gets bad grapes. They'll never ripen anymore from when you pick it. So you have to really? pick it at the right exact time. Gotcha. And I don't know if cherries are like that. They're, they're, it's a little different. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, when they do, and I, I mean, I could be, I could be wrong in this by saying this, but um, typically when you pick it, mm-hmm. they continue to ripe. Yeah. Um, no. It's. I think wine grapes and grapes in general, with the, at least of that, it's the only thing. I'm pretty sure it's one of the only fruits, if not the only, that conti- that doesn't continue to ripen at all. It stays exactly so what it is, or, the, or rots. On time is like it's crucial. Is everything in the, the same. And that's thing, what's problematic. Same thing in coffee is. Um, is it's very it's crucial to pick it at the right mm-hmm. time just to where as because you don't want it to be right like even right. if it is still ripening yeah it's like you want it to be at a certain point right um so it leads into that yeah eventually. and there's color there's a lot a lot of it goes down to color yeah um, okay. i actually have a bracelet on that is what they consider gives it? farmers no way um, that go will go around and they're like hey this is the target um that's really cool but then elevation actually has um, mm-hmm. a big elevation and temperature uh, well, we told in Brazil that I don't know if this is universal, but mm-hmm. uh, depending on where you go, some uh, places won't touch overripe mm-hmm. uh, coffee uh, cherries. Some will will include it depending on the temperature and the elevation. Interesting. Yeah, all that stuff is yeah. is kind of fascinating to me. Um, it, it all plays into it. Yeah, but it yeah, does. Same same way with wine. Like it can be higher elevation, so it's slightly colder, right? Like because it's higher elevation, so it's a cooler climate, which means the grapes are probably gonna ripen less quick. Right. But if there's a lot of sunlight because it's higher elevation, then those grapes might get scorched or something like that. And then it's going to turn different where right. it's, you know, yeah, they're not ripening as quick, but the skins are getting all weird. And there's too many things that go into it and like the slope levels and this and that. And um, but, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it, it's very similar to it's, that because it's, it's fruit. It's all it's over, fruit. Yeah. And it's overwhelming, yeah. really, when it you is. look at it. But the thing I love about wine that is not the same in coffee, because when we can get into it, because basically what I was saying is. When you package a bottle of wine, mm-hmm. um, you you serve it right to the customer. Yeah, which is and, really weird. Which is cool. And yeah, it's, cool it's funny. I think the the cooler thing about w- coffee is you still have a little bit of human element yeah, to play exactly. once you get it. From the sales aspect, if I could bottle a, a pour over 
and send it out yeah. and somebody open it and it's exactly the way I want right. it to be as soon as they open it. That would be ideal because the amount that goes into a proper, properly extracted brew with the right times and mm-hmm. it, it's a lot. So it's like, not only do I have to sell you coffee that's fresh, but then you have to prepare it right for it to be like right. its best possible. I do think that's what's kind of cool sometimes about wine is that the fact is like it's not going to change once you bottle it and if, yep. as long as you've done it right and you know there's other m- elements that can go into it like shipping which can yep. ruin wine like if it's really hot on a truck yep. it'll ruin it that's why a lot of um shipments are refrigerated and whatnot um but i do think that is the one really cool thing about wine is that 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 bottle once they once they do that enclosure of however they want to enclose it with a cork or stelvin or a screw cap um it's going to be that way forever. I mean, as long as it's stored properly, and I think that's, that's really that's cool. That's where the difference is. Like when you see, yeah. like, oh, that's, it's gone bad. It's because yeah. it's been in a poorly stored area. Maybe yeah, usually there's a lot of there's a lot of problems. Like people will even a lot of it has to do with humidity. As long as the, well, that's why the Stelvin enclosure is what they call it, or the screw cap is actually pretty cool because there's never it's never going to get corked because there's no cork. You know, it's just a you know a, a aluminum or whatever they use. You know, cap, um, and it won't have humidity problems. Like sometimes you can store wine in the fridge if it has a cork for too long and there's no good humidity in that fridge. That's why wine cellars are so gotcha. crucial because there's gotcha. a certain level of humidity in it. So it keeps that cork pretty moist and, and doesn't allow oxygen to right. get in. So if you keep it in the fridge, it's going to go bad because mm-hmm. the oxygen is allowing it to get in. But there's many, yeah, there's many problems. And, and if you cork your wine, which not, you know, most all great wines are other than some of the German Rieslings, um, then then you're you're going to be faced with problems of corkage sometimes too which is really i think people think i don't I, I think that they think something different of corkage really what it means when a bottle is corked is that there was a bacteria called tca that's all i'm going to say it it gets into the flu it, it basically gets into the cork after they wash it with this like almost like chlorine solution because they you know the cork is harvested like all your corks are coming from i believe argentina um, or Portugal, excuse me, and they they have these special trees that they harvest. It's actually mm-hmm. a sustainable yeah, practice. It's the it's bark, su- right? It's sustainable. Yeah, it's the outside layer of a tree that they actually have kept. Um, they're they're like a prized possession over there, and and they they do this where they only harvest a certain amount every year, and then they they let that regrow, and then they harvest it again. So it's actually really sustainable for cork. Um, it's actually less sustainable for the the screw caps, right. but basically that that can be infected. The cork can be infected with TCA, which is a a problem because then that turns your wine bad and it just makes it kind of smell like damp cardboard and, and it doesn't taste like it doesn't taste well um but there's a there's a one to ten scale usually of corkage sometimes it can be kind of cork sometimes it can be extremely corked so that's really the idea of shipping mm-hmm. and storing and and there's a lot of that goes into thinking about how you want your wine to be packaged right. and stored that's, it's cool though i mean like yeah. it's there's a lot that goes into it when it comes to properly storing it, but I love the idea that you can open a bottle of wine, yeah, and it's it's exactly the way they yeah. intended it. To it's be. unbelievable. Um, yeah, that's I, why I, I think, think the, it's cool. the roastery experience is cool because like we spend so much time on figuring out the perfect way to represent it, mm-hmm. and that's why I think a lot of people love it is because very rarely are you paying attention to all these aspects, but a lot of people have gone home and drank a really good bottle of wine. So I think there's, yeah. there's, there's cool overlap between both. but oh, for sure. Um, a question I have is within coffee, there is like this huge emphasis on getting farmer representation. Like um, 
every major coffee you buy right now will have a farmer or a producer's name on the bag. It like gives you a name to associate with um, whatever coffee you're drinking, and it's just to represent like, hey, this is this is the person that did it. Like, show some cred, kind of. Um, was there any overlap within wine? Do you see uh, a lot of producers being represented well, or is they are they kind of like quiet? How exactly? No, I think it's weird because now you see a lot of that new world natural wine stuff where a lot of it's a trend for natural wine, especially like the, the cool kid wine to have like weird, you know, labels. Um, it's not very traditional. I loved it. That's why I kind of got into wine. I, I got into wine for the weird, cool labels and cool artwork, but really what you want when you get really into wine and really into different, you know, vineyard sites and other things is you want more information actually on the label and that provides the producer. So that's kind of why I tend to stay away from natural wine too now because I'm a nerd and I want to know what producer, you know, and what vineyard it's grown in or this or that. And it becomes problematic with some of the newer age wines where they don't really provide any of that information. And sometimes it's just a blend and you don't even know the vintage sometimes, which is really weird. Um, some people love that. Some, some people, people love it. They don't even really want to know. typically want to know. Right. They don't even really want to know sometimes. But, you know, if you're nerdy enough, you'll be able to have access to the, you know, and you can the information online. Look at it. Right. Yeah. That's, the, that's right. always been my perspective. If yeah. you have the information, like put a QR code on to do right. something to some play some yeah some bottles do that they'll have a QR code now but really when it comes down to it in the normal wine world the, the you know the traditional wine world you know I have a I have a you know winery out in California called Ridge that I, I really enjoy um, they make a, a bunch of different California based varietals usually that do well out there like Zinfandel and Cabernet Sauvignon and um, all these other wines and like you know that's Ridge because it has their their winery on it, uh, their wine name, and they produce their own grapes, you know, generally, and um, and it gives you all the information usually of, of where it's grown and what vineyard they're using and this and that. Um, and usually the idea about wine is the cheaper it is, usually the more mass-produced it is and the less selective it is. So the more expensive it gets, it you're starting to look at, you know, the vintage is this good vintage of you know of this year and then they provide the information of you know what vineyard it's grown in and in terms of the proximity of in their you know plot of land and the more selective as it gets and the more they can tell you about each wine and you know sometimes it's down to the to the row of right, vines right that's really expensive wine generally you know and would you say that's popular right now is that always yeah. popular is i think it it's kind of it, the wine world's weird where the people who have always been into wine um they know their producers really well yeah. like sometimes i think it, it takes a you know when you start to get really good at wine and you know a lot about wine is when you start to know the producers yeah, of, yeah. really well like there's there's points of knowledge where you know the styles of wine and the grapes and then you start to know the places that mm -hmm. they're grown but when you start to really hone in on the producers, like you can start understanding, like, oh, I had that producer, and right, and blah, this blah, blah, is blah, his crop this year. That's when you really last know. Year, yeah. yeah, I'll never get to that point yeah. because I can't possibly drink that much wine. Right. That that's like a master psalm level where they can start describing vintages of a certain producer from a certain, you know, of a certain vintage right. of a certain year, and that's that's always been in and to wine. And that the cool thing about it is how how old this like industry is too. Old. I think that's the cool thing because within coffee, it's like. Representing a farmer has only been in ten years is is really stretching it even really more like the last five mm -hmm. years yeah. it's been more of a a common thing of like hey we actually want to know we don't mm -hmm. just want to see Columbia on the bag and 
That's that, funny. You know, but then you go to a yeah. grocery, it's kind of similar with wine is like the cheaper is wine is not representing it's not showing much information it's same just, thing yeah it's the same stuff i think it's funny like you go on like you go on to, you know you go visit producers now that's like a wine thing to do i'm sure it's been slightly present in the the coffee world secretly for a long time i have no idea but with wine you know wineries like there's people who know about certain wineries and and producers and the name of the farmer, the stories that are shrouded in their cellar. The uh, generations. You know. yeah, yeah, like like everyone, you know, they talk about Gaia. That's a producer up in Piedmont in Italy, northern Italy, and they make a lot of like Nebbiolos and Barolo and um, stuff like that. And um, that, I honestly, that sounds like you just made both of those. Yeah, things. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, and so Barolo Barbaresco, yeah, it's like it's it's you know Appalachians in in Italy, and they grow these. It's these like bigger, but you know, bigger, beautiful wines. And like everyone knows about that family and the history right. and like the people who, you know, who, you know, kind of started it. And then, but a lot of these wineries are older than, than the United States. I mean, the, the people, it goes back that far. I yeah, mean, some crazy. of these chateaus and wineries, they're, they, they have far greater histories than our country, even not greater, but like far longer standing mm-hmm. history, you know, histories. And, that's what's really interesting about it. And that's always been present in the wine world. Like the everyone wants to go work on a vineyard somewhere over a summer. Everyone wants to go do a producer tour where they go around the chateau and see where they, you know, where they ferment everything and where they store everything. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a dream of mine. I, I haven't done it. I haven't I, I don't know if I ever will. I, I would love to, but it's it's the same thing. Yeah, it's 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 very producer oriented as long as you as long as you yep. get into the nerdier people, yeah. The more you're talking, the more I'm realizing how much coffee has modeled the third wave movement off of wine. Yeah, like it's it's crazy how much overlap there is of wanting to go see the producers and how it's done. And like this is what Same thing, origin yeah. is, right? Yeah. Like we just went to Brazil and and for the attempt to do exactly this and like it looked like a wine trip. To yeah, me. Exactly. it literally looked and, like a wine trip. And not only that, but we we conducted six different fermentation experiments, like. That, that's why I'm glad we actually waited to have this podcast because I've actually now mm-hmm. yeah, I've seen to, a little bit more. Yeah, like yeah. what exactly yeast does in uh-huh. the process of macerating the cherries. Um, I've, yeah, I just think it's it's such an interesting world that n- so many people don't even pair together. Mm-hmm. Like they're yeah. like wine, coffee, like how could those be similar? Um, so I think it, it just offers so much perspective. And I, I kind of want to dive into fermentation a little bit and a little bit on, I don't even really personally know how it works too much in the wine world i know within coffee there's the fermentation is trying to just um influence the taste of the bean right the, mm-hmm. the seed of 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 the cherry with with grapes you're actually yeah. using juices and you're yeah it's just the natural like a lot of it comes in that fermentation process though like if you know the way it really works long story short and there's too many things that go into it, especially because I've never worked in a winery. Yeah, in a layman's you know. terms. But right? layman's, like, yeah, layman's terms, you're bringing those those grapes in as quick as you can, you know. And like a lot of times, you'll pick and harvest those grapes at its coldest part of the night. You know, a lot of times you're doing it overnight so that the grapes, you know, can kind of maintain that level of like almost like you're putting it on ice type thing. And you're, you're actually picking at night. Yeah, a lot. Sometimes, sometimes you're picking really early, or you're picking at night, or, or the, everyone has their everyone has their preferred method, or like they'll they'll call it sometimes by you know by the seat of their pants. But yeah, they're usually loading it onto trucks. And like driving it to the the winery, or if it's you know really close by, like kind of like getting it onto almost like forklifts type right. thing, and and getting it into the winery as quick as they can. And I'm just gonna say winery in terms right. of like their operational standpoint. Right. And usually it's going straight onto like a press, and they press if it's a white wine, um, 
or a red wine generally, you know, they're crushing the grapes before any fermentation. Right. Place. They're crushing it and then they're pressing it. So if it's a white wine, they're throwing those skins out and they're taking the juice and then they're putting it into the tanks or whatever preferred right. method. Usually it's like a tank, um, especially for white wine. Stainless steel is the most preferred. Mm-hmm. Indoors. Um, Indoors, indoors, yeah, controlled in, environment. indoors, controlled yeah. environment. Um, there's many methods that you can use after that, but like, let's say it's a red wine. The only reason why it's a red wine is because, well, first off, it's a red grape, um, but they're putting it into a tank with the skins, right. and they're letting the skin soak on it, almost like a tea bag. Right. right. Um, whereas white wine doesn't do that, but there is a more popular thing nowadays called orange wine, which is basically the red version had, of a white wine, which, which we've yeah. had. And there's some excellent ones. There's some really bad ones. but um, And some people don't love orange wine because there's a certain flavor to it sometimes that can develop that's I, that I don't generally like, but there's some producers who do really well. Would, would some people say that white wine is like the purest form? I don't know. Like, or is I don't it think, not really I viewed think, that way? I don't think it's viewed that way, although I would I would argue that most people, when they drink a lot of wine throughout their life, they start to li- like, if you look at the highest level sommeliers and, and you know, wine people, they generally prefer white wine, I've noticed. It's, it's, they generally like to drink white wine more, and it, I, th- I just think it's it's a little lighter. The acid's usually a little, you know, it's it's more crisp. The yeah. acid is a little higher, so it's a little bit more um, enticing to the mouth. But that's, that's exactly, I like everything. That's exactly what, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, draw, I'm trying to draw connections because well, you have a natural process and a wash process right. in coffee where you're leaving the cherries on to dry mm-hmm. or you're leaving the cherries off. Interesting, yeah, yeah, and yeah. When you look into like the real, real, um, you know, the Q graders, the people that yeah. are really in depth into the industry, most of them will be drawn back to a washed. That's interesting. See, it's very it's, similar. Yeah, it represents. It's very. It's a lot more delicate. Um, okay, so it's more like pure. Notes. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so, so it's, it's a little lighter, like cleaner. Yeah, way cleaner. So that's um, the idea of like there's wine, softer white notes wine. and okay. Um, so that that that's a that's connection you could draw right there is yeah. You're le- less of the cherry is being represented and more of the actual growing process. Yeah. So I mean, that's so funny. I mean, I I, I just see so many you know, and like I read, I read earlier on on that the tasting note or the you know the behind the scenes or, thing, yeah, and they were talking. Label. Yeah, they were talking about exposing zero oxygen or something to it in yep. an anaerobic mm-hmm. setting. It's the same way with wine. So you have all these processes once it's in the tank, and once you've drained that, you know, red wine off the skins, or once that white wine is in that, um, that you know that tank. And with rosé, quickly, it's just a slight skin contact, so it's just a baby version of a red okay. wine. Gotcha. So it just they didn't allow the skins to sit on it long enough to turn into a red wine. That's the idea. Um, so, you know, the idea is that after that and the skin contact, we can talk about that for hours. I'm just going to say the longer you leave it on the skins, the more tannins start to, to kind of leach okay. into the wine. That's what dries your mouth out. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why when you have, you know, mom's Cabernet, mm-hmm. you know, cab, you know, you might not love it cause it's like, you know, that the, there's so much tannins in it, which is also in tea, mm-hmm. um, and it dries your mouth out and it's, it's a bigger, richer wine. Whereas if you have like a really light Gamay or, or Beaujolais wine, kind of similar to Pinot Noir, it, they don't leave it on the skins very long. Um, and if they do, it's still that skin, the skins don't have enough tannins and stuff to kind of impart the wine. And so it's naturally a, a lighter wine. I believe there's tannins in coffee. Yes, I, oh, I, I would I would assume because it's bitter. You right. know what I mean? Like, and, but it's really present in tea. I know, like when you do wine training and they teach you about tan- tannins, they they steep tea for certain amounts of time. But 
after that, the tanks, you choose whether you want to have like an anaerobic state or aer- aerobic state where you keep where you expose certain amounts of oxygen to so it. There's anaerobic is a zero oxygen. Right. We talked about this a little bit on the podcast. Yeah. That's what actually what we conducted Interesting. in Brazil. Oh, okay, okay. You're actually the fermentation is is eating the air. Okay. Correct. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, the, yeah. Where the air is being because everybody's like, how do you get rid of the oxygen? It's actually mm-hmm. fermentation, like eating right. away the molecules. Yeah, that's interesting. Right? Yeah, and like and, I, and I, producing I carbon dioxide, which yes. is filling that environment. Right. That's like the idea of wine is like once you have it, you know, it, you know, the sugar basically eats, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the yeast eat the sugar once the yeast is introduced in so many different fashions. Sometimes it's naturally done over time. That takes a long time. Yeah. Sometimes that's like when you get into the natty wine world where right. they're not introducing yeast right, right. or you have certain yeasts in Beaujolais that they say produce a more bubble gummy flavor to your wine. That's going to impart into the wine. It's going to eat that, you know, eat the sugars. It's going to fart out CO2 right. and it's going to release heat, you know, and that's going to all like release out and this and that, and you, that can go on forever too. But Really, it's it's there's so many things that can be done in the winery that actually change and make the wine is what it mm-hmm. is. And like there's I wine, there's a wine, you know, a wine region called Jura. It's in, you know, I guess it would be the western or excuse me, the eastern side of France. And they purposely allow a bunch of oxygen into their wines a lot of the times. Same with, a, you know, a, a wine region um, in the Loire. Well, a, an appellation in the Loire Valley called um, Anjou. I've, I've found that they make a lot of oxygenated wines and. When you taste them, they're almost like, if they're done properly, you can tell that they're oxi- like oxidized mm. a little bit, but it's in like a purposeful way, and it tastes really good. What's, um, the, what's the quality? It's almost like this like butterscotchiness gotcha. about it. That there's like this like this candy note to maybe, it. Yeah, yeah, there's like this weird candied note to it. But you, but okay. what's funny about that is the wine. Typically, a bottle of wine once open only lasts about two days. Yeah, like forty eight hours, um, and then it turns into cooking wine. Is the right. joke, you know? But these wines can sometimes last 30 days, 60 days, yeah. like because they're already exposed to so much oxygen mm. in the process. But that's really kind of, yeah. yeah that, that is interesting. Yeah, it's weird. And, and, I, and I've seen it. And um, people will leave it on their counters, you know, with the, the cork in it for sometimes 30 days, and it still tastes like how it does. And But in the process of the winery... Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to like the fermentation and how long they're, you know, you know, the ferment time, the fermentation time, and if they're doing, you know, basically the the caps rise up, the all the all the the like if they're doing red wine, all the, you know, the the actual skins and the the, right. the stuff that you know that kind of builds up in the tank over time that falls off, it mm-hmm. kind of rises to the top, and they have to do pump overs and pour overs you know they they take the juice from the bottom and they pump it over with a hose okay or they push it down circulating yeah or some like old school wineries will take people's feet and they'll do foot treading Mm -hmm. where they'll literally crush the grapes with their you know like push it down and stir it back around or like bacteria to the yeah yeah, literally though yeah Yeah. no it does but um and then you know eventually uh it's it's you know you're you're fining and you're filtering it using a certain number of methods and you you know and you know sometimes you use like bennonite which is like a type of like clay or you use egg white to fine and like get all the particles out or you just leave it unfined unfiltered where you're racking it sometimes and that you know that can be explained you can look that up another time but and then you, you usually you add sulfur or you don't or you add a certain amount of sulfur and that's to preserve the wine in its process and um and then it's bottled and it's shipped. I mean, yeah. that's that's yeah. the long, that's the layman terms. That's a <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That that is a, a process. I mean, yeah. holy cow! And the thing that you said, the wine that actually is exposed with oxygen mm-hmm. lasts longer. And yeah. there is some coffee. It's, it's a coffee similar to where you know you have a certain amount of time, especially 
after roasted with the with the green bean itself it starts losing its water weight and at a certain water weight content it's like um starts just to lose the freshness and then the roasting you only have so much time but there's some coffees out there that um generally around like um we'll say a month to two two months is when i really we start to see like decline Mm -hmm. but there's some fermentation that is making coffees like eight months eight months out it's it's still like insane because the fermentation is is leaving such a a dent in the Mm -hmm. the overall taste of the cup so yeah it is weird how stuff like this is Mm -hmm. is making it just changing the kind of the game a little bit um yeah that was fascinating i I honestly didn't know much about um fermentation of wine until you started talking about it no it's weird and i mean there's too many things that can go into it and like you know i think the greatest example of of when you're it's it's all about consistency and every vintage is going to be different slightly and a lot of the big like champagne houses or a lot of the big wineries that are known for a certain taste um they have a lot of higher standards you know and they're really trying to maintain that consistency and they have these like guidelines to follow um you know and they don't they have more of um pressure to maintain that certain level um with with champagne like for example it's a little bit um, like non-vintage champagne, right? So like when you have Veuve Clicquot, it tastes the same every single time. It doesn't make any sense. It's because they generally take, they have vintages that are frozen, that are literally frozen in their cellars or warehouses or wherever they keep it. And they have it frozen to add into their vintage currently. Gotcha. Because champagne is such bad weather. It's in a rainy, dreary part of France in northern France. And it's actually really bad weather and it's a bad area to grow grapes. And so every vintage is going to be slightly different. Um, all the wines every year are going to be different. Um, and so they add stuff from prior vintages wow. and they mix with that's it. That's crazy. And they do, they just, and that's why it's non-vintage. That's why they can't put a vintage gotcha. on it. That's why gotcha. That's why 99% of champagne you're going to see on the open market and in your wine stores are not going to have a vintage on it. Hmm. Um, and if you ever get the chance to, to drink like a 2008 champagne, I had one for the first time the other day, they're, they're marvelous and they're a little bit more expensive generally. Um, because they're really, they hone in on that vintage and they make sure everything goes right and they were actually able to sell it because it did go right um, and they didn't have to mix it with other things, basically. Yeah. That's crazy. They don't the, always produce it, though. The the sheer amount of infrastructure that is, like, um, around wine is crazy to me. Like, yeah, for most of this fermentation taking place in coffee, it's happening in not very developed countries yeah. on farms that, you know, may have a truck that mm-hmm. are like you yeah. know there's big operations out there but for the most part when you're looking out from it's all taking place outside for the most part mm-hmm. it's it's in barrels that are you know plastic barrels yeah that, you yeah know, it's very similar yeah plastic it, like tubs almost yeah but the fact wine. that most of it's taking place outside and like there are really high-end um processing facilities for coffee mm-hmm. but it's it's also new all that stuff is new and it's and interesting there is like some of the award-winning coffees are you know taking place in very similar tanks and it's all indoor and it looks like a, a, a doc, like a, some sort of hospital. Yeah. Yeah. You it know? looks and like a laboratory. It looks like a lab. It's, it's yeah. all about the control and consistency. So the weird thing about fermentation and coffee right now is like, it's such a question mark, like anaerobic process is, is all we get a lot of the times, you know, a 20 hour anaerobic or a, um, a carbonic maceration, you know, it's just so general and nobody really knows much about it for the most part in the world they just know what the end result is the, it, the it's con- funny controlling yeah. factors are so consistency is so small yeah um year to year it's funny though because like 
in the wine world, it's almost looked down. Up, not really though, because I don't really care about these things as long as the wine is really great. Yeah, but as long like, as it tastes good, but and like, it can be done again. Right, right. And it's funny though, because now it's it's really cool, you know, for people to hear about how like you know wine reps will say this to me, or I used to say it. They'll be like, they still foot trod all their grapes like they used to a hundred years ago, and like they have their you know cellar workers like you know, crushing the grapes with their feet. And then they're still using a horse in the the vineyard uh, to, to, you know, go down and, and pl- like plow the land. And some like really respected wineries still do that sort of thing. It's, it's kind of funny and they don't use it's any technology. That's like, that's like considered like biodynamic and like natural. And like, you know, there's like the whole world of biodynamics in the, in the, in the world of wine where they follow like the moon and, mm-hmm. And they do like weird things where they don't spray the vineyard with like certain, uh, you know, compounds like, you know, copper and sulfur and all these things. And they'll do weird things where <clears throat> they take a bunch of male um, bugs and they grind them and, and put them all over uh, the vineyard so that weird. female bugs don't come in and try to weird. Cr- ruin the crops. Like this is all and it's all like shrouded in this like truth. Um, that works, I guess, for some of these vineyards. It's all technically like quote unquote organic. Yeah, it's like bio. Yeah, like biodynamic is like organics on steroids. Like organic is like you're spraying organic, you know, gotcha. uh, like sprays. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Supposedly, some people think that organics is is BS in the wine world because you're having to spray more, so it's like almost just as bad as spraying something harsher, but one time that they're having to spray it like ten times. So huh. they're saying it's just as bad. I don't know. I haven't gotten. I'm into sure. That. We can get in the same yeah. co- conversation, right? And, and like, but it's hilarious. Like, the biodynamics is really organics on steroids. So you're 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 taking the whole organic method and you're you're doing even more you're crazy things. It like and you're, you're making organic yeah. sprays that are actually or uh, like yeah, like they'll do this thing where they fill like a cow horn or like a bull horn with like poop, like poop, and they'll bury it for like X amount of months or a year, and then they'll take all those horns and they'll they'll grind it with water. Because all this like bacteria, and they'll make a natural fertilizer with it, and then we'll spray the vines with this like so, fertilized, this like poop verti- fertilizer. Right yeah, and like that supposedly works. Again, I don't know. You know, I don't necessarily care too much anymore about that sort of thing. Like I, I do. Like I've just I've just read so much about the biodynamics. When a winery is biodynamic, I think it's really cool. Um, but like I don't I don't believe a lot of ridge. You know, like one of my favorite producers in California that I mentioned earlier, they're not biodynamic. It's fine with me. I'm still going to drink wine that's been sprayed with certain things. Um, Do I want my wine to be tampered with like some of these crazy wineries out there that are really high, you know, like Mm -hmm. barefoot and like where they're adding ridiculous amounts of this and that? No, I don't want that. But I don't think it needs to go as crazy as as spraying the cow horn poop. Typically the highest price bottles on the market like every year coming from these like biodynamic so um, usually, especially on the wine market, the highest price bottles have kind of always been highest price. Okay. Really, like it's like these Bordeaux bottles, gotcha. or you it's know, like stock. It's, or, just, it's always up there, right? Like, and it changes every once in a while. Like now, you see uh, red Burgundy or even white Burgundy, which is a, you know Pinot Noir for the reds generally, and generally Chardonnay for the whites. Mm-hmm. Um, those are some of the most expensive wines in the world now. Um, they like. I can't really drink red burgundy anymore, like good red burgundy, because it's just too expensive. It's like minimum one hundred fifty dollars a bottle. Jeez. So I don't that I don't even know about that market anymore. Is that a yield thing from the amount, amount that is grown that it's, year? It's it's demand. It's it's yield. Yeah. It's a it's a it's bunch a of, of different. It's the fact that Pinot Noir is the best grape in the world for, to many people, and it's the fact that Chardonnay, which is funny because no, not many people know this, but Chardonnay 
comes in various different amounts of styles. A lot of people think that Chardonnay is like an oaky, buttery wine from California, but it's really a lot of times this crisp, slightly oaked, delicate white wine from France um, that they've learned to grow so well, you know, and those are really expensive. Um, Whereas a lot of the first growth Bordeaux's is what they call them are wines that go back to, you know, a couple hundred years ago or even worse, even more. Um, Those wines are generally the most expensive, like Chateau Lafitte, you know, you know, I mean, you could keep going for some of these first growths, like, you know, you know, Chateau Mouton, uh, Rothschild, like, you know, a lot of people just call it Mouton. So these, there's these like legendary vent, like wineries, like producers that are highly prized. Um, and that's kind of where the wine world is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's more of like a collector's thing. Um, but generally the markets fluctuate. Um, like right now you see Burgundy, like people make the joke, like 20 years ago, you could have gotten DRC, which is Domaine de la Romani Conti. Um, technically maybe the most expensive wine in the world. Um, people joke that used to buy it for $30 a case or something, you know, back, you know, you know, 30 years ago. And now it's like, you know, you get it for like 1700, 1800, sometimes more a bottle, like depending on the vintage, but, um, but yeah, no. So that's kind of where the wine world operates in terms of the high market. Like there's a lot of great, you know, documentaries that you can watch about this. There's one called sour grapes where about Rudy, forgot what his last name is. He kind of swindled the wine world and, had a great palate and would mix wines to taste like older wines mm-hmm. and like expensive wines and would sell them and mm-hmm. made millions off of fake wine. So, so uh, and that's not a, there's no blending going on of like, it depends. So like there's blends like Bordeaux style so blends. There's, there's a lot of blends yeah, going like, on, but like there's it, like it single origin stuff is, yeah, it's like it, in the coffee world, there are blended wines. Like some people are like, well, I've always heard to drink blends. That doesn't really make much sense because there's certain styles of wine that are blends like Bordeaux. If you think of the, and all these wines that I'm saying like Bordeaux and Burgundy, those are places, you know, right, right. in the United States, what they did was they marketed the wines in terms of around the grapes. Um, and it made more money because of that. Whereas easier it, to conceptualize it, too, right, a little bit. Right. Whereas in Europe, it's more based off Where? the place. Yeah. So that's the idea is like when you talk about Burgundy or Chablis or Champagne or, you know, uh, Bordeaux, those are the places that they're grown. Right. Like you don't even, to the outside, to the consumer, they have no idea what that grape even is. Um, whereas in California, the label says Pinot Noir. Or, right. And in France, they don't allow you to do that. You cannot print the grape on the label. It's the place. So it's the, the you place. don't even get an idea what the grape no, is from the place? No, you just have to know. You just have you to just know. know that this farm. Right. Wow. Except in Alsace, which has their own little dex- designation because they were once a part of Germany and now they're a part of France. And but then they, they've gone back and forth. Different. They're allowed to print their, their labels. So the wine world is extremely confusing. Yeah. It's extremely confusing. Like, there's it's, too much confusion about well, it. When you're trying to include you. all this stuff and you're trying to be representing all this stuff, it gets confusing. And that's right. the same thing that's happened in coffee is... Mm-hmm. If for the person that walks into a third way cafe that doesn't drink coffee a lot, it's incredibly confusing. I, it me- is for the me. menus are <laughs> very weird. It's for sure. It's just confusing. Like what is do you guys what there's pour overs, right? Like what I've got to choose my espresso. I've got to like it, there's just a thousand questions and I remember being so overwhelmed walking in cafes and, and now it all makes sense, but I'm just yeah. totally engulfed in it. No, I think I'll bring up this question I think you might have brought up earlier and or you know you said you talked about earlier it was like you know where what's the goal in the wine world or what's the goal mm-hmm. even for me it's like I think the the goal always in wine is to not be pretentious about it because 
no one has the, you know, no one who works a, you know, 40 plus hour a week job and is doing this or finance or whatever, or is like, you know, taking care of kids has really the time uh, or wherewithal to, to kind of understand wine. But, you know, what's great is to understand the basics. And I think the idea for me is always just making wine, same with cocktails for me, very accessible and very a lot more easier to understand. Yeah. It's never going to be very easy to understand. Let's break it down a little bit. It's it's the same style with cocktails for me. When I write a cocktail menu, everyone has these these cocktail bars. It's kind of falling a little bit out of fashion, but where it's extremely weird and they all have these weird names. And I just think that sometimes that the last thing that someone wants to do when they go out to eat is be overwhelmed with like, what's this cocktail going to taste like? That's why I always write a really old fat, like a really old fashioned, literally, uh, you know, cocktail menu because I and then you can impart creativity right. on those on those drinks mm-hmm. and like you know it's basically considered a riff I think the same thing should kind of be with the wine list where it's easily broken down nothing's very complicated or there's maybe even slight descriptions that's what I would like descriptions and, are nice yeah and yeah like, it's not you've like seen a menu in, where there's no descriptions yeah. and all you it's yeah I would love to have a restaurant one day that's you know pretty unpretentious and has those sort of descriptions and has an easy accessible yeah. wine list that's very simple it's and yeah, and I think that's the goal for me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's kind of funny because Upshot, what we are is uh, a pretty, like, we like to th- consider a third wave cafe that is trying to get people to, even if they don't know anything about coffee, be able to walk in and, and order without being overwhelmed and have the ability to connect with the industry without feeling like they got to know everything. Right. So that is totally a goal for me within coffee is to like, Yes, be very knowledgeable about it, but without it being pretentious because everybody knows that cafe that when you walk into the baristas like know that you don't know and right. automatically there's this weird exchange and like mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of that. And, well, uh, and I and, think and it was actually a popular thing a little bit. In yeah. Coffee. To it's be to be confused. So that's that's what's kind of in the cocktail world. But you, like I said, you see it. And ever since I've gotten really heavily into restaurants and seeking out different styles of restaurants i've learned that when i first started out loving restaurants and wine and cocktails that i kind of was that pretentious person like was kind of like oh you're drinking that wine or you're you're, you're this or you don't know anything about that or like and sometimes i still catch myself going back but a little bit more not, about food maybe you but, won't say it now yeah yeah but, but maybe now, that's the difference. now i understand well, now i'm trying to understand how my business is going to work one day and how i need to kind of come at it from a bunch of different angles of like, you know, not everyone's going to be able to walk in and, and know everything about, you know, this, the, the culinary aspects of food or, or cocktails. And I think at the end of the day, I've become much more softer on those aspects. Like, you know, it's okay if someone doesn't know what a Negroni is or, you know, which right. is a cocktail or, or, or never tried an old fashioned or their favorite drink is a, is a, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I, my restaurant, the the restaurant I work at. I mean, there's millionaires, billionaires who walk in to eat dinner, and some of them will order a Tito's soda. It's right. like you can legitimately get any cocktail in the world or wine in the world, and you order that. You know, I don't care though. At the end of the day, because at the end of the day, I want people to be happy because that's everyone's going through stressful times, and yeah. everyone, no one has time to really learn about all these things. Right. If they do, that's great. And you can introduce them to things like that, which is great. Um, but I can't get mad at people anymore. And that's that's what my goal is, especially with running these restaurants, where it, it used to be based off this thing of like, oh, I'm going to have the best this or best that, and they're going to like it. It's like, no, it's like, I just want people to come in and have a really good time and say they had a lot of fun. Yeah. And 
that they were introduced to something new or right. that, you know, they had something that really was tasty. Right. Um, and I think that's overall like the career goal for me. It's like but back in the day, it was like, oh, I'm going to have this this great restaurant that's going to introduce these people to these new flavors and stuff. Really, I just want people to leave feeling like they had a really good time. Right. Experience. You know, a good experience. Yeah. That's and the best time for me. Appreciation. Right. I think that's it. And like, I don't need you to know about everything. Um, I don't need you to really like the process with then coffee. I don't need you to know. I just need you to go. That's good. What you guys do yeah. is cool. Right. And I like that. Right. I mean, that's, I th- that's the I goal that's for me. That's the goal. I think well, it's like, I used to be into these restaurants that were, you know, like maybe a little bit more modern and this and that, and a little bit more stuffy or, or, you know, it was maybe more food oriented. And I've slowly graduate, you know, gradually kind of gone into this feel. Cause when I go out to eat and I've gone out to eat everywhere, been to, you know, all the big cities and had dinners at some of the greatest restaurants in the country maybe even in the world. And I've come to this realization that I like these fun restaurants that are maybe a little bit more loud, have a great, you know, playlist, have amazing decor. That's going to be timeless. Right. Not just be very like modern and eccentric. I like, I, I like feeling good because I've already had a lot of good food. Right. So now I just kind of want something a little bit more familiar. The environment. Yeah. The, and the yeah. environment to, to hit. Um, but what that's was, kind of was a that, um, point. that a record bar we went to in St. Louis. Oh yeah, Takashima. Uh, Takashima. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. a, that was a good ex- uh, yeah. example of like not the fanciest place you yeah, ever right. step in, but like right. was yeah. a really awesome experience. Right. And I think the same goes along with but at the end of the day like I know, you know, we were talking about fermentation and all these other like crazy things, but when it all comes down to it, uh, the customer experience is what you need yeah. for, for to survive. Like, you know, it can be your dream or your goal, you know, to have these passion projects or whatever, but like, you know, people need to like it and they need to have fun. Um, and they need to, you know, enjoy the product. No doubt. And it's okay if they don't understand carbonic right. maceration of a cherry. Right. But hopefully they, they enjoy that. Right. <laughs> if they like it. Or they may not like it. Right. And knowing that this yeah. is how it impacts it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I've got one. I think this has been yeah. awesome. Yeah. I think this has been. No, it's been fun. Like, I've got one more question that I kind of wanted to address. and sure. um comes down to, like, the pressing issues within the industry. And... Yeah. With coffee, I've got two examples. It's like um, right now we're ha- they're having a hard, just a lot of countries are having a hard time getting young people to be plugged in, like to the actual growing process. Like okay. they're seeing their parents and their grandparents like have done this their entire lives, and they're not making much money from mm-hmm. it, and they're getting used a lot in the process. And a lot of these younger farmers are. Uh, having a hard time like continuing the tradition and that has a big impact down mm-hmm. the line. Um, and like you mentioned earlier, climate uh, yeah. changing a little bit, everything's getting hotter, mm-hmm. like certain elevations that you could grow really good specialty coffee. Mm-hmm. Now you got to go North. You know, maybe four, 400 meters higher or it's whatever. It's so funny it you say that it's the same thing with wine, but that's interesting. So yeah. yeah. So uh, you climate probably, right? If, I'd yeah. say, yeah, the, the, especially in the wine world, it's very similar. You know, I think, it's different where I think wine's kind of cool. Like you have people like Action Bronson who are doing the cool hip wines and, and like people love that. That's kind of how I got into wine. And then I gradu- gradually went into this more traditional side of wine. But I think you probably see that and where there's chateaus that have been around for 150 years or whatever and multiple generations and this kid doesn't want to take it over. This, you know, 
you know, I bet you see that a little bit. Um, yeah. But I do think there's a lot of pride in some of these European countries. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of like, you know, Italy and France, well, there's this pride of like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to keep this around. And I'm a sixth generation. You always hear that. Like when right. you're when you're talking about a winery, like you hear this like seventh generation winemaker. They're like, making How? money. Yeah. yeah. They're making Sometimes some serious money. Yeah. Generally, for I the mean, most part. Right. Like, I'm, I'm, I think the problem is I think. Not always, not always. I think they can. And, Doing and like, fine though. Sometimes though, the problem is, is like the quantity. If they're, I think the people who are probably making the most amount of money are the, the you know, the the high volume people. Oh yeah. I think sometimes actually with these like like Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, like they've been around for so long. I you know, well the Rothschild, so they probably do have money. They own the world, right. Type thing right, supposedly, right. but you know, you have like the Chateau in France, and they've been around for forever. Like. They probably don't have the greatest production, so they're probably not. Even though their wines are expensive, they're probably not making that much money. Yeah. But they ha- probably have family money. They've been they sit on a really nice, you know, acreage of of land. And I don't know if there's like a crazy amount of money in wine. I think there is. There's money to be made, but I think there's probably more money to be made off importation and yeah. distributing and That's stuff like that. But it's very same yeah. sim- similar thing is yeah. These importers are but racking yeah. it in. I can't be. I can't say as much part. for. I can't say as much on that wavelength. But in terms of what's going to affect wine in the future, is the climate change for yep. sure. I think a lot of people say that is climate change, and and that's why you see like Canadian uh, vineyards like popping up now that are really in- impressive, and it's just moving north, like you said, like. You know, now, you know, there's southern France is going to get really hot. You know, you yeah. might not be able to drink Rhone Valley wines here in, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, or you might not be able to drink Bordeaux or this or that. Now you're going to have to go up north, you know, and some of these southern southern American, you know, wine regions are just going to be so hot. So uh, I think that's probably the most pressing thing that's coming. Be interesting them. in you 10, know? 20 years to see what. Right. Yeah. And they're going to have to impart some 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 tactics and yep. um you know before i leave this you know pod i will have to plug my favorite wine region which is germany and german you know in general um you know and the the shrouded myths around riesling you, you bias it all though with the, with the german <laughs> no, well, since we're german i'm not it's weird i'm really i'm i never got into it for that reason i just really love riesling yeah. and, I, and people don't understand when i say that because they just think of riesling as like a really sweet wine but it's generally 98 percent of it is not sweet it's dry i think you, um, you served um riesling maybe on like thanksgiving yeah at yeah one point. It you was, loved it you kept yeah, drinking it, it. So yeah you good. wanted a second glass which was like <laughs> uh german riesling at one point was the most expensive wine in the world actually um years and years and years ago um before you know modern day you know history really uh, as we know it but uh, it, it, the wine world is shrouded in so much myth and it's problematic for the average customer. Most people think they don't like Chardonnay. Most people think they don't like Riesling. Um, and really what I'm here to say is wine, I don't know for sure about how this works with, with coffee, but wine, it just depends on how you make it. Like, so Chardonnay is, uh, is a, is a wine that's going to be influenced by all the decisions you make. It's a, it's a grape that soaks up everything in terms of, uh, what you do to it, whereas there's other, whereas there's stubborn grapes like Pinot Noir, which is kind of, you have to grow it a certain way. But if you oak the hell out of Chardonnay, it's gonna taste really oaky. Yeah. If you make it really crisp and refreshing and don't put oak on it, I guarantee someone will love that that doesn't know about it. Right. So same with Riesling, where you can make it really sweet, but you can also not make it really sweet. It's not like good wine. I had someone say this to me once, where oh, I just thought the bad wine was all sweet, and the good wine is all dry. And I realized in that moment, like, oh, people think that the winemaker just can't figure out how to make these wines dry. Right. They're just like right. bad. They're just like, oh, we don't know how to ferment. It's such a yeah. poor 
it's a bad uh, understanding, understanding of it. Yeah, yeah, and like I realized, like, oh god, that this is this is the this is what people think, and like, and that's kind of sad, but it's just kind of how it works. Um, but really, you know, wine will do; it'll become whatever you want it to become. If you want to ferment it till dry, just ferment it till dry, and that's right. how it works. Like, and, and you know, I also think people don't give wine a chance. You know, they get concerned of off of wine, off of one wine they've had in their life. You know, they'll, you know, someone said, "Oh, I don't like Chenin Blanc." Why? Why? Why don't? And they said that they had it out of an Advent count, count, you know, calendar, out of like an Aldi Advent yeah, wine calendar. Right, right. So you're gonna tell me you don't like a whole grape? Right. That's like saying you don't like hamburgers because you right. had one hamburger once at a McDonald's and, and, and it was bad. Yeah, it's taking shake. No one really does that with anything else, but wine, right. they're they're down to do it with, yeah. which is very odd to me. I don't there, know if it's there like is that some one. overlap. Yeah, because um, yeah, I just don't like Brazilian coffee or right. yeah, Colombian coffee is just not my favorite, right. and I'm just like, that is such a Colombia is a such statement. a massive producing country. Right. Same with Brazil. The amount of stuff that is coming out of Colombia and with these fermentation processes, there's like an endless amount of things that you can do now to mm-hmm. where it's not just the varietal. It's not just the species of, of coffee. It's it's what you're doing after it's being picked. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's very similar in that way. Is it's You can't be short sighted. Like even with Brazil, when we went, I had a, a perception that I didn't love Brazilian coffee. And then the longer I got into real more realizing I got that the processing of it wasn't very precise. It's very, yeah. um, mass oriented. It's about how much you can sell instead of the higher, highest quality of it. So right. very, but it, very but like you said though, uh, but there's still great Brazilian coffee. It's kind of like yeah. the same thing. Like Spain, I think is the number one wine growing region in the world that produces the most. Right. Yeah. But there's still great Spanish wines. Just because right. they produce a lot doesn't mean there's bad Spanish wine. Like there's just there's a lot more bad. representations of it, right? From yeah. the worst to the best, right? right? And that's kind of how I think there's, which, which, what I think to wrap it up is talking about the, the similarities and differences or whatever. I think the the thing about coffee that's different um, is that everyone drinks coffee, kind of, right? Yeah, so that's true. And it, and it, and not everyone drinks wine. In fact, most people don't really drink wine. Like I've had people that I went to high school and college with that are like, "You're into wine? Like that's right. kind of weird." Like because they just think of Franzia, like slapping the bag right. at the college party, right. Um, right. you know. And and with coffee though, everyone kind of drinks coffee, yeah. so it's far harder to turn people onto really good coffee. Sometimes I feel like. Because they've already had coffee and they they kind of like the bad coffee or like right. the the lesser it's of like quality. Well, enjoying box wine over right. I don't want. I don't need that yeah. fancy wine. Yeah, it's yeah, like, right, right, right. Okay. Where, yeah. Whereas, like you know, you give people good, really good wine. They never really tried wine that much. They like it or this or that. But I think coffee's in this weird category where like everyone drinks coffee. I've been drinking coffee since I was a fourteen year old, thirteen year old. Probably they know so right. much about right. it. That's yeah, the yeah. interesting That's thing. That's the problem. So there's but a lot of premeditated things. Maybe not even that they think they know. They just have such a deep relationship with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And they they right. Most people don't even know what coffee is. Like, right. No, well, no, no. I, I I made that joke one time. I was like, how many people here? Not like, I think someone was making fun of someone for liking a certain type of coffee in the group I was with. And I was like, who even here knows what yeah. coffee is? And none of them could and say everyone it. Was like, oh, and shoot. some of them was, a, was saying that they were a coffee snob. But people, it's the same thing kind of with wine or anything other thing, like cocktails and stuff. Is People have such a deep relationship with it because they've been drinking it their whole life or been consuming it their whole life, but they actually haven't found the time to figure yeah. it out. And that's what's kind of very similar yeah. with wine and coffee. And it still bugs me sometimes when I hear people say, like, I don't like Riesling or I don't like Chardonnay. But it's one of those things where I don't get as mad anymore because, you know, people just don't know. And you right. have to be the one that's like, well, hey, how about you try this? Chardonnay? Right. And they want to you know? they want to sound like right. they know what they're talking about. Right. Uh, it's think, cool not to like. Yeah. Oh, I don't stuff. like that. I've, you know, I've had it. 
right. kind of things. Like, it, well, sure. right. It's like cool not to like sweet wines and right. and and wine. Right. Although some of the most expensive wines in the world are like these like crazy right. sweet wines that are really high expensive. Right. Um, this is probably the same thing with coffee. Yeah. A lot of very times, similar. Honestly. Well, the more we talk, the more I'm realizing that um, the overlaps are. I had a I had a question that I was going to ask of. Yeah. What are the similarities? And we don't even have to talk about it because yeah. it's been yeah. constantly overlapping, which I love. And that's yeah. that was exactly my goal for this. So I, I see. I, well, I see so many at the end of the day. To, yeah, like I see so many similarities, like just because the fact that it's fruit, you know, yeah. and, and 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 it deals so much with the weather and you know the 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 elevation and the slope and where it's grown and and the different things that you can impart on the flavors for mm-hmm. the final product. Like right. there's so many things you can do to those those you know coffees out there that you you know those those brews that you were uh doing earlier that can impact the flavor you smell every single different right. type and they smelled it like that one right. that smells like pure basil i yeah. joke that it smelled like spaghetti and meatballs yeah and it's the same with wine where there's all these things you can do along the process to make it taste a certain way mm-hmm. and that's what i think is so interesting about it and yeah you know and that's why people lose themselves in these yeah industries. you just because there's so <laughs> much i love it though man and um got anything else to add i mean we could probably talk for another hour and a half which oh, i yeah, love yeah. but um have but yeah, man, this, yeah we'll have to we'll have to do a yeah. part two of this yeah. and uh uh i think this has been good and i'm excited to see what um our listeners have to say about it i know a lot of our listeners you know if you love you know coffee there's if you're a snob about coffee you probably maybe a snob about wine or whiskey or <laughs> something else too big, or cigars big or, whiskey community yeah, nowadays which i, I haven't it. gotten into enough even though i make cocktails um i just like drinking cocktails yeah. too much but but yeah no I, I mean if you're ever interested in learning about wine there's there's too many things out there to to really access like there's wine for dummies like that's the joke about every you know starting any hobby right. but you know you don't have to become a sommelier. You don't have to become a master sommelier, but to, you know, get into wine, you know, try different styles and don't write off any one style. Cause there's a style, there's a style of every grape out there for you. Um, yeah. And that's good advice, you know, and that's probably, you know, very similar to coffee. Like, you know, like you were saying earlier. So impressionable, you know, just try to get into it. If you don't, if you for sure, if you don't like it, Oh, well drink, cocktails that's awesome. drink water. Yeah, or drink water, right? <laughs> it's probably for the best. Trevor, I appreciate it again, man. Oh, yeah. uh, Thanks for will, having me. Yeah, no problem. And we'll, uh, like like always, we'll be posting more Upshot-related content for you guys. So I appreciate you guys listening, and we will be back soon with some more content. Peace. Peace.